bless you today. It's always a joy to have you here. And your thousand dollars cannot reproduce until it enters into a covenant with Baptist Church will picket their funeral. We will remind the living that you can still repent and obey. From the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, also home to the factory. This is Heart of the Matter, where biblical Christianity meets American evangelicalism face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We thank the true and living God for allowing us to participate in this, His ministry. And we pray that His Spirit will be upon us and you tonight as we talk about these things. Hey, if you're in the Salt Lake City area and you are seeking to belong to a unique church family, we invite you to campus. Go to www.all-campus.com and uh, we think uh, the approach to doing church might be for you, might not, but you can come check us out and if you go to campus.com you can find information like times and direction. Got an email from Shelly, I'm not a Mormon, just to let you know, love researching LDS, things like that. Uh, I was looking up archaeology for Mormonism and came across this video by Wayne May who talks about the Hopewell people being the Nephites. Do you have any information on the subject? I was watching the Bible versus the Book of Mormon and they were saying that there's no archaeological evidence, but I remember Mormon missionaries telling me there was, so I dug a little. Anyway, any information would be great, she writes. Okay, first of all, like all things LDS, when it comes to stuff like this, they kind of operate off a line of thinking that is, isn't it possible? It's kind of the isn't it possible uh, factor. And they use information like this, like about Hopewell Indians, as there being a possibility that they truly are uh, uh, ancestors to the Nephites. For example, let's say a group of Latter-day Saints go to Mexico City and they see pyramids and their LDS tour guide with a glimmer in his eye points out some arrowheads in the dirt and they will, you know, you know, it's possible. Isn't it possible this could have come from the forefathers of Lehi and Nephi or the Lamanites? And uh, when the members return to their home, some of them, not all of them, but some of them might even go when they teach a class to say, I've seen evidence that the Book of Mormon is a reality because I was in Mexico and, and then the white-eyed people are like, really? And, but there is no established, no established, no verified scientific proof of any LDS claims uh, toward the Book of Mormon or anything else, um, Hopewell Indians included. Now, uh, they, there are some things that you could say are possible between the Hopewell Indians and the uh, fictional uh, Nephites, Lamanites of the Book of Mormon. But what the LDS don't say in their proposals are the differences that are there. For instance, they omit the facts that the Hopewell Indians uh, did not grow corn, they did not grow wheat, they, did not, uh, they grew crops that were domesticated in the eastern United States, independent of plastic, 
uh, plant domestications in Mesoamerica and South America. So in other words, the plants already were already domesticated before uh, Lehi's fantasy thing came true. Uh, there's a there's a, should be a graph on the screen that tells you where you can read more about this type of stuff. We're giving that to you so you can look up the evidence that there is. The DNA studies uh, do tie uh, the Hopewell to living Indians, uh, most closely the Eastern Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho, but that has no bearing on Book of Mormon proofs. More information, they'll give you another graphic here to show you what you can look up online. And, and you can pause this if you're watching streaming uh, or uh, on the archives and just click on it, double click on it, cut and paste, and look this stuff up. Uh, these links will also find proof that the Hopewell Indians were not a tribe. Um, anthropologists and people who've studied the Hopewell Indians said that they were really an amalgamation of a number of different Indian tribes that came together only to trade and barter. And uh, uh, there's a doctrinal dissertation written by an Ohio State a student titled Mitochondrial DNA Analysis of the Ohio Hopewell and the Hopewell Mound Group. We have a graphic for that. You can check this out and read up on it. This, all this stuff together puts to bed these fictional claims that there is proof that the, uh, uh, any Indians, Hopewell Indians or any others, came from Lehigh and uh, it will put an end to the isn't it possible game that they play. In the end, the online LDS Hopewell Indian promoters are no different than people who say, you know, uh, Santa Claus is real because there's a, North, a real North Pole. And that's kind of the thinking that they use. A lot of people use that thinking in, when it comes to beliefs. And uh, that's why facts are important and searching out truth. And no matter what you discover, uh, if it's true, follow that. If it's not, don't. Before we get into tonight's program, there's some things I want to clarify. Uh, this year's focus is on what I believe are mistakes and misdirections and even some sinful practices that are in Christian churches today. We get a lot of emails from people saying, you know, you've really picked on a lot of things. There's a lot of good churches. Listen, I know there are a lot of good churches. There are pastors out there uh, in this state who pastor uh, churches um, uh, and do a fantastic job in bring, feeding the uh, uh, people the word of God and worshiping God in spirit and in truth and, and, and keeping it on the down low in terms of worldly affectations into their services, etc. cetera. Uh, the problem is, is when you do a program, you're not here to pat everybody on the back. You're here to expose the things that are errant. And the reason we're doing that, again, is to protect the LDS. Who, that's our main focus. And when they come out of church, a Mormon church, and they look to another place, we want them to see what to look for and what to be afraid of. Well, we receive feedback from people face-to-face -face and online who wonder about how I base or what, what's my standard for my opinions. Many of them uh, also, uh, you know, how, who do I think I am? I, I've gotten that a lot to take on the churches, to take on well-trained men and women who also love the Lord, to take on Harvard PhDs who have long done these things, and, uh, or men who have pastored churches for decades on end. Who am I to go against uh, what they have to say? I'm nobody. Uh, no degrees to support my views, nor decades upon decades uh, pastoring a church. Uh, but this is what I have to offer, take it or leave it. A desire to live as sold out um, for God as possible. And when I say as possible, my spirit is definitely willing, but my flesh is, is not. 
So I, but I do have the desire to try to live and walk by faith, to do all that I possibly can to follow what the Bible says. Additionally, I've spent somewhere between 10 to 20 hours a week since 1980 in search of absolute truth. And uh, I have embraced and rejected, embraced and rejected, embraced and rejected many theories, many things that were promised, that were real, that were true, and many of them that just fall apart. So when I come upon absolute truth as found in the word of God, I'm going to be a stickler with what I read. Now, once I found the Lord in 97, um, thousands of hours daily, not, not daily, but cumulatively over every day since 97 in the word of God. That's my basis. So a friend of mine said, well, wh how, how come you can say Benny Hinn's no good compared to, and there's thousands of people following him, and you know, you've got a couple hundred who are watching your, your, uh, your, your show. Well, this is how it works for me. You can disagree with it, but this is how it seems. I have a, 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 like a blackboard in my head, and when I hear pastors or preachers or practices or, or doctrines thrown out, I, 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 I listen to what is said, and uh, a red flag will come up if something is off compared to what I've read. I don't know what else to do. I mean, I, I'm wrong, certainly. But I am trying to give you the, uh, what I see. And if enough of those flags come up, I don't care who they are or how, what sacred cow they are or how popular they are, I'm going to say they're full of it. And, 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 and so that's the process I used in coming out of Mormonism. I studied it, and I looked, and I searched, and when, um, uh, when I realized there, enough flags were present, I walked. There'd be no reason to stay in something if it is proven to be a lie. Life is too short. So uh, another thing is I, I really don't care uh, um, the personal failures or you know, some of the failures churches have because they're human beings. We're not focusing on people because, you know, they do certain things wrong. We're talking about the real question that just came up on your screen. This is the real question. How does a person or a religious institution stand up to biblical truth? And then an important follow-up, what is their justification for the stance they have taken? If you talk to a pastor and they say, well, we've been doing this, but you know, I don't know, it's not working, I, I've blown it there. I'm not gonna go and attack them for that. But if you talk to a pastor who says, we wanna have 10,000 people in our church by the end of this decade, and, and we do that because it's biblically correct, and you know, uh, we're gonna fight them tooth and nail based on biblical premise. So um, because tr Christian truth claims, at least to Christian truths pertain to eternity, I think these things are important. Think about it. We have regulatory systems in place for the medical profession, for the legal profession, for, I mean, we've been trying to uh, open up a building and we've had been under the scrutiny of a city who have said, you got to do this, this, and this ad nauseum in order to protect people who will come into this building uh, for church on Sundays. So they have sent in and they have made us do all kinds of things to protect the public. But when it comes to a church, you can't stand up and say anything or else you are, are being the bad guy. I don't believe that's true. I think that's what Jesus did. I think that's John, what John the Baptist did. And I think it's incumbent upon us to test all things and hold fast to what is good. Uh, so 
Before we go to prayer, uh, I got to let you know of a situation. This is going to seem counterintuitive. From 2006 to 2009, my wife Mary and I got ourselves into financial trouble because I refused to let people know that our ministry had financial needs. Due to the LDS teaching that Christians get in ministry to make money, for those first three years on television, I said, we're not going to ever say we have a need. We're just going to, where God guides, God provides, and I believe that. Um, in 2009, things got really bad, primarily because our audience were under the impression that because we were on TV, we were a rich ministry, and they assumed that money was flowing in, so there was no need for any of the audience to really support us. Quite frankly, that had never been so. So at that time, I was advised by several uh, believers, mature in the faith, to say there's a big difference between letting people know there's a need and... Uh, asking them for money week in and week out, uh, telling people, send us your money versus uh, if you're in a position, uh, please support us. So in 2009, we started uh, a financial support system called Partners, and it was a great benefit in sustaining us and pulling us out of the hole that we had gotten in. But um, it still is, and in fact, we're very grateful for the partners that we have, and many of, most of them, uh, more than 90, 95%, I believe, are still with us. But the problem is, over half, I think, of our annual budget also came from people who lived in Idaho and Utah and would watch the program and would send in support because they liked what we did. And because now, when they turn on the TV, they don't see us. We don't have that support. And it's not that they're against us. It's just we're out of sight, so we're also out of mind. And uh, admittedly, this has hurt the ministry. Uh, Mary's mom passed away a number of months ago and left her surviving children some money. And we've used a great deal of it to, to try to get the studio up and running and the streaming in place and to pay for all things that TV20 used to pay for and to be national now and all these other things. But those funds are limited. And we personally see ourselves heading back to the place we were in 2006 through 2009 if something doesn't change. I am not asking you to give the ministry money. I am just, I'm not trying to guilt you into giving it. I'm not saying, you know, if you don't act, we're not gonna be on the air. I, I, we're gonna be on the air because God wants us on the air, and if we're not, it's because he doesn't want us to. I'm not, I'm not inferring that at all. I'm simply letting you know, as I have been advised to do over and over again through the course of being in ministry, that there is a need. And if you are so led, and if you are in a position, then uh, you might consider uh, supporting uh, our ministry. The beautiful thing about the situation is we do reach a number of people, and if just so many are led to help, the burden should, should not be heavy for anybody. Uh, as always, please do not give if you're on a limited fixed income. That's one of the things about the internet ministry is we probably have very few people who are elderly. And, and the elderly people, uh, not on a limited fixed income, when they would watch us on television, they would send us the five and 10 and $20 things, which helped out, I mean, it made up a great portion of the ministry, but now they're gone. And, and so, again, if it's not supposed to be, it's not supposed to be, but we're just letting you know, and we wholly stand on trusting in God for these things. But we're talking about our audiences out there across the nation, 
and uh, even the world. So while I cannot tell you that God will bless you for choosing to help us out, I can tell you that funds supplied, uh, will, we will do all we can to continue to reach and teach uh, in spirit and in truth to those seeking to uh, worship God in the same way. Uh, on your screen, I think they've given you avenues of, to reach us, mailing address, phone number, uh, websites for credit card, things like that. Thanks for hearing me out on that. And with that bit of happiness, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we uh, seek you in all things and need you. We pray uh, for people who are seeking for truth. We pray for people who are stuck in religious institutions and don't know a way out. We pray that you will bring to them the pastors in their community who are teaching the word of God, who are making church what it is supposed to be and are providing uh, uh, access to you through uh, spirit and truth, Lord. And we uh, pray that we will be used to help people in this as well. We pray for those who are seeking for truth through Mormonism, out of Mormonism, uh, from Mormonism, and we pray that our programming will be able to help them. We pray for our volunteers and staff and everybody else who's involved in the ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. The problems and issues we're going to discuss tonight all relate to an error in human judgment when it comes to doing church. It's an error that... I, existed within about 313 years once the early church was established by Jesus Christ himself. And today it thrives like no other. The error, leaders in the church embracing the notion that when it comes to Christianity, bigger is better. Bigger is better. Now, I know I just said that one of the beauties of this ministry is that we're big and that we uh, therefore can reach a lot of people and therefore the burden won't be on a lot of them. Am I being hypocritical? You may or might not agree with me, but ministries, you know, like ones seeking to reach the LDS or Muslims or to feed the starving of Zimbabwe or put shoes on people in the name of Jesus, uh, serve a very different purpose than the local congregation of a church and therefore they operate by very different rules. For example, Reaching a large number of supporters is very important to a downtown rescue mission. They are not a church. They are a rescue mission, and they are there providing food and shelter, and some of them teach the Word of God too, but to have a lot of people supporting them is important because they're, they're not, they are ecumenical. They reach all faiths, all people, all colors. doesn't even matter if some are believers. The rescue mission is there. So it's important for a rescue ministry to have deep roots all over to get support to keep them alive. But a downtown church should not have uh, the same idea. A downtown church has a very different purpose, even though sometimes churches ab uh, uh, absorb the things that are, that are going around within the community. In other words, churches have a specific biblically directed purpose. And there is, so therefore, there is a big difference between churches and ministry. Uh, when it comes to doing church at the local level, which is the level church is properly done, the biblical mandate is never been, has never been, bigger is better. And actually, it's the opposite. The biblical mandate seems to be, the biblical theme is smaller is better and when it comes to God and the things he does. So allow me to take kind of a casual walk through scripture as a means to build a foundation on what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. Next week, we're going to look at some of the problems that arise when pastors 
come to believe that bigger is better and they ignore biblical directions and seek to get big. And then the following week, I'm gonna drop a bomb on you like you can't believe. I'm gonna reveal to you who, in my opinion, presents the best system of church governance, all things considered on earth today. One that ought to be adopted by every church uh, on earth relative to what the Bible has to say. So we'll reveal that in two weeks. Um, let's lay the biblical case for small things when it comes to God and his church. Generally speaking, the Bible presents God as seeming to enjoy overcoming the world through small, insignificant ways, and rarely is a case made for big numbers uh, relative to men and their numbers, that is. All through the Bible narrative, we find God wanting there to be less of man's involvement and more of his involvement in the things that we do, whether it be in terms of horses or chariots or armies or even human abilities. Man is constantly appealing to his own strength. We do that in our flesh, to our own ideas, our own wisdom on how to do things, including on how to do church. But the Bible as a whole plainly details what every seeker needs to look for on how a church is run. It is there. It will become apparent to you in the weeks to come. You're going to be amazed, really, I think, when we lay out the argument of how church should be done. And it's not done this way. You're going to have to ask yourself why. In light of this, it's significant that all through the Bible, God uses seemingly insignificant means and things to bring about great results. Why? To prove his power and his place in their lives and not ours. For instance, he took and he used a very simple wooden stick in Moses' hand to reach millions and guide millions and inspire millions. He says, what is in your hand? Moses says, a rod. And he tells him what to do with it. And with that, that, single, that rod evidenced the power of God through Moses. He took the jawbone of an ass in the hand of Samson and he smote thousands. He had David pick up five stones. One of those stones was slung and went into the forehead of a giant who dropped to the earth dead. One rock, one sling, one small boy, nothing but a shepherd, dropping this guy who everybody else was afraid of. In Elijah's case, he took a handful of oil, a hand, not oil, but he took a cruise of oil, handful of, of flour, and it lasted for years in keeping people alive and feeding them. And then in the case of his only begotten son, he healed a blind man by spitting in the mud and sticking it on his face. And then he also fed thousands with five loaves of barley bread and a few fishes. God seems to love and use small, insignificant means to accomplish great wonders among men. It's a biblical theme. Remember in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 7, Gideon comes along and he's going to go to battle against the Midianites and he has tens of thousands of the children of Israel who are going to go to battle with him and God says to him the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands lest Israel vaunt themselves against me saying mine own hand has saved me. So God willed down Gideon's army to 300 and then he led them into a victorious battle. Throughout his life's teaching, Jesus likened the church to being full 
of, of people who didn't belong, weeds and, 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 uh, and bad fish and birds of the air. And he said that the true body would be one of small things, not great things. Read the revelation of Christ in Revelation and where you can read how he describes the in church. And he says in one of these lines, you are small, but you are strong. Uh, remember him saying, straight is the gate, narrows the way, few, few be there that find it. We're not talking big. We're talking few. Look around at modern evangelical, uh, modern e American evangelicalism, and a person would think that Jesus is an American. They would think that he's white. They would think that he's uh, Republican, political, that he's materially powerful, that he loves wealth, and that he expects the church to be hawkish, and, 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 and all four of these things that the American evangelicalism tends to represent today. Not so, at least not biblical. Look at the individuals God has used. I talked about David. Remember, remember what Moses says in Numbers, what it says about Moses' character. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. That's the kind of guy Moses was. He wasn't a bombastic idiot like me. He was meek uh, above all men on the face of the earth. David was a sh uh, sheep herding boy when he was anointed king and uh, ultimately replacing the tall, handsome people's choice of Saul. And when it came time to providing himself with his own physical body, remember Jesus, cre the word created all things. Did he provide himself with a body that looked like a Greek Adonis? Did he provide himself with superhero uh, features? No, not at all. Isaiah described our king well, saying, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form, no beauty, no comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire of him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, here's the point. Ask yourselves. Seriously, stop and think. If our king came and, whose church this is, this body, this church is his, he came and he chose to take on flesh that would look like this, he lived a humble life that would be like this. He was indifferent to the big things of the world, the Roman Empire and all that stuff. If God loves to overcome the world through small means, what do you suppose his earthly church ought to look like? What should the earthly church kind of represent? It's his church, remember? Remember what he was like when he lived here. What do you think his church, should it be marble? Should it be gold? Should it be enormous? Should it have a budget of millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars just to operate? I mean, what will his church look like? Is it going to be luxurious or do you think it would be humble? Do you think it would struggle? Do you think it would be meek and unassuming? Somewhere, especially in America, many pastors, or at least those who seem to draw big crowds, have lost sight of these biblical pictures that say so much about how God is and how he works. Have we changed because times have changed and men have changed and these things are necessary or have we forgotten how God works and replaced his ways with our own when it comes to church? Have we just rationalized ourselves into this corner and just, well, this is, this is nice. This, God wants things to be nice. 
He wants things to be pretty. He, he expects us to have luxury. I mean, do we just, don't we look at what the Bible pictures for us and how he's always worked? I don't get it. Moving from the numbers of men and the appearance of our king, listen to how Paul describes how God approaches managing the affairs of his church, the affairs of this world. When God takes action, listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, the base things of the world and the things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and things which are not, that means things that have nothing good really about them in terms of how the world sees them, to bring to naught the things that are, meaning the power and the principalities, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, that's what it's about there. The, the, the flesh of man wants to glory in what it has accomplished. The flesh of man wants to say, look what we've done. Look how many members we have. Look at our budget. Look at how many countries we've gone out and served. Look how many meals we've given to this. That is, that those things are great, but the quantity is not the idea. The, the, the idea is, are we doing it God's way? so that he receives the glory, he receives the honor, and people can say, there is no way this happened by the guys who were involved. God had to step in and do something in relationship to this. Okay, I got a few things to talk about here at this segue. Based on these principles alone, believers ought to be highly suspect, very cautious, when they look at mighty churches, mighty religious men and women, and mighty religious edifices that they erect, and the mighty budgets that come along with them, be very, very suspect of the whole thing. Included in my explanation of some things, you're gonna hear some apologies now. You're gonna hear some recantations and some changes of mind on my part that will come through the next few uh, shows. I would love to cling to all my former ideas and opinions I've shared on shows over the years so that I can appear stable to you and reliable, but I'm not. And uh, so I have changed in some ways. And it is due to um, being in the word, seeking, ardently seeking to know God's will in matters. What am I talking about? I have come to see and understand the Bible far more clearly than when I began doing the show seven years ago. Most of you know I was raised an active Latter-day Saint, and you might uh, realize that Mormonism is very legalistic in their approach to doing religion, and it completely, virtually completely ignores spiritual rebirth, which is the horse before the cart. The horse is spiritual rebirth, saved by grace through faith, the cart is the Christian walk. It completely ignores that, and it says Christian walk, Christian walk, Christian walk, and it doesn't even give God credit in the, uh, in the matrix. Leaders in Mormonism in the past have always said, listen, there's a guy named LeGrand Richards. He said, look it, if we're going to choose what church is the best church on earth, it's either the Catholics or it's the Mormons. 
because the Catholics have direct line of priesthood authority that they claim from Peter, and if they lost it, the Mormons have a direct line through a restoration process Joseph Smith claimed. They say Protestants don't have a leg to stand on because they have no line of authority, and they, of course they haven't read Hebrews to see that that line of authority doesn't even exist, that Jesus is our high priest and it ends there. So once I came to understand these things about Mormonism, and I related to it in a legalistic way, I left, of course. But prior to walking, I was immersed in a very legalistic denomination and was uh, all about what that description would include, okay? When I began serving and going to school at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, I experienced the reverse, so to speak. I was immersed into a culture, baptized into a culture that was the opposite of how the Mormons did things. Every, I mean, there's people hanging out, you know, it was Jesus and grace and Jesus and Jesus and, and, and Calvary Chapel was, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and it is all about Jesus. He is the horse before the cart. It's Jesus. He is it. This flowed over into my uh, message on HOTM. I was so anti-denominational, I couldn't see straight because of how I was immersed into this new culture and I embraced it not knowing any other way. And I hadn't been steeped in the word yet to see the difference. My clarion call on the shows prior to the Mormons were come to Jesus, come to Jesus, be born again. I stand by that still. That is the first step. It's very, very important. And we even held open water baptisms. Come and let, let's, and we baptized hundreds and hundreds of people in the state over the past seven years. And we said, look, it doesn't matter if you're tied to a church or not. Church, forget church. Let's baptize you and, and, and go on and be with Jesus. That's what matters. So uh, that was essentially my version of how I was taught born-again Christianity, which I still embrace in terms of soteriology, which is a word that means how churches teach, how religions teach you're saved. What is their soteriology? But over time, I saw a number of factors that caused me to look around and ultimately ask myself, this is the question, what is the best biblically-based explanation of becoming a Christian and then being a Christian. What is the best biblically-based explanation of becoming a Christian and then being a Christian? You got it? The LDS, if they were honest, will say the essence of becoming and being a Christian is works. They will say that it is by faith without works is dead. It's their biblical response, and it would be a worse bake, uh, a works based soteriology at best. The people in the Jesus movement at the Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, which is a little bit different now, but the essence of becoming and being a Christian is the clarion call scripture, we are saved by grace through faith, period. We're saved by grace through faith, period. We're saved by grace through faith, period. Okay? I've fully embraced both singular passages, and I've looked around at the churches who promote them. I've looked at the people who follow them strictly, honestly, giving their lives to them, and they're both wanting. They, 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 both of them lack, and both of them have substance. So after long and careful study, I believe, and it's my opinion, you can disagree or not, but I believe the best biblically-based description of becoming and being a Christian is we are all saved by grace, through faith, to love. 
We are saved by grace through faith to love. It is an inferior explanation to use the save, uh, faith without works is dead. It's an inferior, sing, an inferior singular explanation to say we are saved by grace through faith, period. The Bible, as in context, as a whole, does not teach that principle, period. It, is, it does teach it when it comes to salvation. Absolutely, I believe that. That's the upright bar of the cross. It is a man or a woman looking to heaven saying, I can't do this, save me, and you are saved by uh, grace through faith, period, there. But there's another part of that cross. It's the crossbar, and that's where you reach out to the neighbors. That's where you reach out in love. That is the second part of burying your cross, of picking up your cross and walking with it. And if we think that Jesus was crucified on a single stake, we omit the other part of becoming and being a Christian, okay? I'm not talking about exceptions here. Babes in Christ, in, people who die, who just accept Jesus on their deathbed, I believe in that. Uh, or a thief on the cross. We're not talking about exceptions here. But we are talking about people who have understood who Jesus is and what he did for them. And they have believed by faith on him that there is another part. And that is to die to self and love others. That's the horizontal in the, uh, in the 1 Corinthians 13 sense of love, understand, or to choose to love or to not. If they choose to not love, they are not his. I, I emphatically stand by that principle. Uh, it's biblically contextual, and it's really important. I'm getting to some important points, and then we're going to go to the phones. So listen, you are his by grace through faith. You are his, but you are created to love. You must be tapped into the vine and then love. His new commandment is to love others. Upon the, this hang all the law and the prophets to love, to love God and to love man. You do not have Christianity with just this. You don't have Christianity showing up to churches, walking in, praising, 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 liking the worship because it appealed to you, uh, doing your little religious thing there in the confines of your little monastic experience and then walking out. It doesn't work that way. It never has worked that way. There's a this to Christianity that has been lacking because of the focus on this alone. Nevertheless, the focus on this alone, on neighbors and, and serving and legalisms is, is doubly inferior. So that has to be taught. It has to be interchanged in um, in the, the discussion of religion. The reason this is important is because it helps us realize how church ought to be and how it ought to serve, what its purpose is. Show me a religious definition of what it means to become a Christian and to be a Christian, and I will show you the type of church that they do. You got that? Show me a church who says, this is how we define what it means to become a Christian and be a Christian, and I can tell you without ever walking into the building what type of church they hold, okay? So works-based soteriology produces works-based service churches. So listen, the LDS, their works-based soteriology, faith without works is dead, work, work, work. What kind of services do they have? They have meetings. They're like business meetings. 
and they're meeting so that people can go and then go out and do the work that is necessary, all right? On the other hand, show me a church that preaches grace, 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 period, 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 you and Jesus, you and Jesus, you and Jesus alone, and I will show you churches where the people come and go without any discipleship and love suffers. I'll show you a church where people do not become a force to learn how to love by interacting one with another which is one of the reasons that we gather together. In both cases, the focus is still on the self. In the legalistic churches, the people are gaining their salvation and they're doing it themselves. In the just this church, everybody is still focused on their relationship with God, their uh, holiness with God, Jesus and how much he loves them, Jesus and this, but they don't do much to reach out. So that's why it's become acceptable in this day and age for churches to proliferate and grow and people to walk in, have their little Jesus experience and walk out and believe that that is pleasing to God. It's not. There is an answer to this in the end, and we're going to talk about it next week as we continue on our discussion of church, what its purpose is. Before we open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. Uh, before we take our first caller, let's take a minute and share with you an insight on the ministry. We'll come back and take somebody from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's been an amazing ride. All glory and honor to him for letting us be a part of it. We have been able to see so many people not just leave Mormonism, but come out into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's worth its weight in gold. Since 2003, Aletheia Ministries has sought to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. In 2006, we aired a first of its kind, a weekly live call-in television program that compares and contrasts biblical Christianity with present-day Mormonism. Uh, we could talk about how they say Jesus was a created being. Bible says he's the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, Bible says he was not created by anybody. He's uncreated. The Mormon Church says that Jesus Christ suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. But all the references to suffering and to our being Christian is focused on the cross in the Bible. The Mormon Church says that, that you are not righteous because of Christ's life. The Bible says he imputes his righteousness into us as believers. So we're not only cleansed of our sins, we are made righteous by our faith on him. Since that day, Aletheia Ministries has published three book titles, distributing over 20,000 copies all over the United States and world, baptized hundreds of people, seen thousands come out of Mormonism, tens of thousands refuse attempts of the LDS missionaries, and has equipped literally millions of people with the facts about Mormonism relative to Biblical Christianity. And we've only just begun. Let's go shopping! Hold me fast Hold me fast Cause I'm a Answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just love my country. And I'm a Mormon. I am a Mormon. And I am a Mormon. 
The year of 2012 has been dubbed the Mormon moment as the LDS Church, for the first time in its strange and troubled history, sought to have one of its own assume the most powerful and respected position in the world, that of President of the United States. After 40 years of activity in Mormonism, Aletheia founder, television host, author, and non-denominational pastor, Sean McCraney, is able to articulate the positive and negative effect of the Mormon moment. Mormonism brings in a minimum of $16 million a day. They own the internet uh, and they're very adept at swaying public opinion. We've got to inform people about what Mormonism is truly about. We're in a position to do something to stop it. We have the material. We just need some ability to get that material out to the public. Aletheia Ministries is placed to move its television programs, podcasts, books, and website materials, not only into different languages, but into far more invasive distribution channels. But we need your help. We are looking for people who truly want to be a part, who get what we're doing. If you're in a position, and if the Lord leads, we would love for you to consider partnering with us and helping us combat this monster uh, that continues to spread worldwide. If the time is right for you, and the inclination has come to you from our King, please consider Aletheia Ministries this tax year. This ministry is about love. It is not about antagonism. We use methods to reach people's hearts, to get them to search out these facts for themselves. And, 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 and that's what we're about, and we need your help to do it. I can't think of anything else. All right, we're back. We are going to take a call. Pray for us from Jake in Boston, Mass. Jake, you're on Heart of the Matter. Jake. Jake. You're welcome. I've become an atheist since I left the church, and I guess I'm wondering, you know, what would you have to say, you know, like, why should I accept biblical Christianity? 
Great, uh, really good question, Jake. Can you hear me? I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Okay, if you want, I'll answer your question and then uh, you can watch it on air. Maybe that would help, streaming. Okay. Yeah. All right, Jake, nice to meet you and I'll talk to you now. Hey, listen, uh, first of all, the question is, why does Mormonism produce so many uh, atheists, agnostics? And uh, the, the simple answer is, because they, they scorch their heart so badly. It's a miracle, really, that somebody can discover what Mormonism uh, is about, how much it lies, and how much do they have manipulated people, and then to, then to even believe in God at all. I mean, I had a period of, of uh, uh, nihilism where I didn't believe anything. And it, so it's kind of expected, this is why. You are taught from very early on if you're not a convert, and if you're a convert, you are taught and fed, this is the true church of Jesus Christ. The rest of them are lies and false. You are taught that this history happened, that this book is true, that this thing is true, that prophets lead, that all this stuff is true, 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 true. You swallow that hook and they have you on the line and then you discover you know, the facts and you look around and you say, I bought into that bill of goods. So it's once burned, twice shy, or once burned, 5,000 times shy, and you don't wanna be burned again. So you join or you look into other religions and you find out that much of the stuff that is involved in those is fictitious too. And you immediately are burned much quicker. You go and you read that certain things that are talked about in Christianity aren't so, and you are quickly to shut it down and really quickly, if not immediately, you become an atheist. And my heart goes out to you, uh, Jake, because um, it is a byproduct of Mormonism. It's their scorched earth policy. And that is one of the most uh, demonic things about the religion, is what they do to you if you turn from it and if you discover the truth. The second question is why would you uh, give uh, Jesus' biblical Christianity a chance? Um, to me, I believe in the historicity of the Bible. I believe there was and is a Jerusalem and Israel, that the things prophesied of that are correct. I do think that Christianity is established in facts, not in fiction. There's one reason. Second reason, I believe from outside non-Christian sources that Jesus Christ was a real man and he died at the hands of the Romans. I believe this is true, but that is not, and the claims of his resurrection are not what keep me uh, believing. What makes me believe is the fact that he called 12 men to be his disciples who went out independently on their own, not with each other in a, in a group like party uh, session, but they left everything behind and Jesus trained them and then they went out and they gave their all, their lives. 11 of them martyred, one of them not, gave everything to teach that they had seen with their own eyes him resurrect from the grave. If 12 individual men who were not pushovers, they would go and they would sacrifice the rest of their lives for no apparent uh, merit or, or reward here on earth and would suffer martyrdom for that, then that tells me there is something very, very viable about it. And if Christ came 
and he lived and he gave his life and he did the miracles that these same apostles attest to and suffered for and were beaten for and killed for, if he did those things and resurrected, then he is king. He is Lord. I believe, Jake, within you is a spot for worship, for seeking truth. And I believe all of us come to the point where we decide if we are going to pursue the course of truth, even though it's painful, or if we're going to shut down and take the course of atheism or whatever other ism that you want. There is an atheist peace. I know, I've experienced it. It comes when you say, I'm done. And you do experience a peace, but it's a peace that this world gives. And it does not provide fruit and sustenance that, need, that you need to uh, live on as a healthy person. Christ gives life. He is the bread of life. He is the light of this world. He's the life of light. And I, I can just tell you from my experience, when you come to know the true and living God, who is Jesus Christ incarnate, his Father and the Holy Spirit, you will change and you will never look back and say, I've made a mistake. It's tough but you'll never look back on that. So here's the challenge and we'll go to the next caller. Go to him. Say, I have been burned by religion. I have been burned by men. I've been burned by people. This guy on TV may be lying to me, but I wanna know directly from you if you are there. And give him your heart, give him your faith and trust and wait for him to prove himself to you. He will, I promise you that. Talk to me in the future. I look, to hear, look forward to hearing how it goes. We're going to Laura in Highland, Utah. Laura, you're on Heart of the Matter. Can you hear me? I can. Hello. Hello, you're on the air, Laura from Highland. Hi, Sean. Hey, I heard you talking about the Hope Wells at the beginning of the show. I didn't catch the whole thing because we were a little bit late logging on. But I just wanted to call and let you know we did, Jamie and I did a, uh, a fact-finding mission out there two weeks ago. You did? Yeah, we, we found ourselves in Cincinnati on an unrelated matter, and because we're geeks about such things, we, we decided to drive out there and check it out for ourselves. So what did you, what, what, tell the audience again what you checked out, Laura. The Hopewell, the Hopewell Indian Mound. Oh, excellent. What did you discover? Well, they, they actually have, no, they bear no resemblance to any civilization mentioned in the Book of Mormon. And we specifically asked questions um, of the uh, the park ranger that was there that had worked there for quite a while, and she um, they they had no villages or towns or even large settlements. They lived kind of in individual little shelters. They had no corn or agriculture, no written language, no sign of any old world or ancient Near East culture, and they engaged in cremation. And those mounds that you would see, the rounded mounds. Now they had the earthwork mounds too, but they believed that those were like part of their um, worship because they kind of were like the sun and the moon and all that kind of lined up with that. But um, the mount, the rounded mounds that you see, they kind of look like a like a, a an archaeological tell. Those were just burial mounds, and they would um, cremate the bodies, and then they would put them in the mound and cover them over with dirt. And then when the mound got you know high enough, they would move on to the next mound. So. They had a lot of animal effigies and pipes. Apparently, they were big smokers. Huh. Um, and they did spatial tattooing. Really? And so, I mean, I've read the Book of Mormon. That's not how they live. So uh, I just wanted to give you that as a uh, firsthand witness. of uh, That was 
that was our experience in trying to get some additional information on the Hopewell culture. That, so. that is tremendous stuff. I really appreciate it, Laura. Because we have, uh, you know, online, I, I don't see it, but we get emails from people saying the LDS are just touting that, touting it, touting it. So really good that you've uh, set the record clear from being a first-time witness. Did you ask that state park employee or whatever if he had heard of any of the Mormons' claims? Yes. In fact, she was very guarded initially when she uh, spoke to us about it because she thought perhaps she might say something offensive to us when oh. she found that we were from Utah. Yeah. But when we told her, look, you know, we don't really believe this, that, you know, there's a lot of talk about this in the neck of the woods that we live in, and we want to know the truth about it. And then she let her guard down, and she said, yeah, they come down, they come through here all the time. They bring them in in bus loads, and they, we tell them the same stuff that we're telling you, but they walk away with their deeply held beliefs intact because they don't want to hear the truth. And she was completely puzzled by it. And I just said, welcome to our world. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, tremendous. It was really an interesting trip, and I was really glad we had the opportunity to go out there because, like I said, we have some family members and stuff that are really touting it. So it was nice to see for ourselves that it was just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Way to go, Inspector Clouseau. That was excellent. Thanks, John. Give love to the family. Okay, will do. Bye-bye. Okay, Great stuff, you know, and this is the thing. You've got to search. You've got to. Listen, Jesus said it really plainly. Uh, those who want the truth, they will find it. Those who love the darkness of this world more will not. If you are somebody who in your heart you want to know truth, pursue it at all costs, no matter what happens, no matter who says what, pursue that course. If you have a question about old earth versus new earth in terms of creation, if you have questions about the flood, if you have questions about biblical historicity, if you have questions about Mormonism, God says we must uh, worship him with our minds too, not just our heart and soul, with our minds. You have to go and search and seek out. And I promise you, just like Laura and Jamie did, they went out, they studied, they talked to the people, they went to the place and they searched it out and they got the answers and, and the answers were no, there's no way this, these were Book of Mormon characters. But the Mormons go, they don't want the truth, they wanna be reassured in their blindness and blindness is what they have. I would, rec I would suggest to you, we will all be responsible for the blindness that we accepted into our existence here. We've been given life, we've been given eyes and ears and minds and hearts. According to the level of our ability to understand, I would believe, I could be wrong, but we will be held responsible for the lies we embraced, the deceptions we uh, entertained, and the truths which we found and followed. I, I, I completely believe that because that is what the gospel is based upon, not the gospel, but the Bible is based upon. Truths presented, search it out and find it. You know, uh, one quick question. I don't know how much time we've got. Do you believe Christians should go out on the streets and share the good news, hand out tracts and reach, try to reach people? Not sure if you know, I know your position there. I think that however you are led, whatever gifts you are given, I know a number of guys who uh, here in this town, they do that and they plant seeds and they are on fire for the Lord. In fact, our ministry supports them as they go out, uh, not with much, but we do our best and they go out and they do that and I think it's great. I do have a problem with people who are antagonistic on the street because that's a one-on-one -on -one deal. You want to be antagonistic on TV or on the internet or something, fine. But when you're approaching people and antagonistically going after them, I think that's an infringement. But if someone's just out there saying, hey, I want to talk to you about the Lord who changed my life, by all means, go do it. Time is running short and more and more people need to hear the truth. 
Those who are seeking will take that pamphlet as they're walking by, and they will read it, and they will find him. And so I'm all for that type of thing. Listen, join us next week as we're going to continue on, and we're going to talk about what has happened in the churches when they have embraced the idea that bigger is better. And they have ignored the small flock. The shepherd knows the names of his flock, uh, messages that are in the Bible, and instead have said, we can do this on a gigantic grand scale. Be with us then here on Heart of the Matter.